Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 20, Part 2 of An Antarctic Mystery, or The Sphinx of the Ice Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 20, Part 2 Unmerciful Disaster. One day, as we were seated on the summit of the iceberg, gazing fixedly on the deceptive horizon, he exclaimed, "'Who could ever have imagined, Mr. Jorling, when the Halbrane left Kerguelen, that six and a half months afterwards, she would be stuck on the side of an ice-mountain?' "'A fact much more to be regretted,' I replied, "'because only for that accident we should have attained our object, and we should have begun our return journey.' "'I didn't mean to contradict.' replied the boatswain. But you say we should have attained our object? Do you mean by that, that we should have found our countrymen? Perhaps. I can scarcely believe such would have been the case, Mr. Jorling, although this was the principal, and perhaps even the only object of our navigation, in the polar seas. The only one, yes, at the start, I insinuated, but since the half-breed's revelations about Arthur Pym— Ah, uh, you are always harking back on that subject, like brave Dirk Peters. Always, hurly-gurly, and only that a deplorable and unforeseen accident made us run aground. I leave you to your delusions, Mr. Jorling, since you believe you have run aground. Why, is this not the case? In any case, it is a wonderful running aground, replied the boatswain. Instead of a good solid bottom, we have run aground in the air." "'Then I am right, Hurly-Gurly, in saying that it is an unfortunate adventure.' "'Unfortunate, truly, but in my opinion we should take warning by it.' "'What warning?' "'That it is not permitted for us to venture so far in these latitudes, "'and I believe that the Creator forbids his creatures to climb to the summit of the poles.' "'Notwithstanding that, the summit of one pole is only sixty miles away from us now.' "'Granted, Mr. Jorling.' But these sixty miles are equal to thousands when we have no means of making them. And if the launch of the schooner is not successful, here we are condemned to winter quarters, which the polar bears themselves would hardly relish. I replied only by a shake of my head, which Hurly-Gurly could not fail to understand. Do you know, Mr. Jorling, of what I think oftenest? What do you think of, Boson? Of the Kerguelens, whither we are certainly not travelling. Truly, in a bad season, it was cold enough there. There is not much difference between this archipelago and the islands situated on the edge of the Antarctic Sea. But there, one is not far from the Cape, and if we want to warm our shins, no iceberg bars the way. Whereas here it is the devil to weigh anchor, and one never knows if one shall find a clear course. I repeat it, Boson, if this last accident had not occurred, "'Everything would have been over by this time, one way or another. "'We should still have had more than six weeks to get out of these southern seas. "'It is seldom that a ship is so roughly treated as ours has been. 
and I consider it real bad luck, after our having profited by such fortunate circumstances. "'These circumstances are all over, Mr. Jorling,' exclaimed Hurlygurly. "'And I fear indeed. What, you also, Bosun, you whom I believe to be so confident?' confidence mr jorling wears out like the ends of one's trousers what would you have me do when i compare my lot to old atkins installed in his cosy inn when i think of the green cormorant of the big parlours downstairs with the little tables round which friends sip whisky and gin discussing the news of the day while the stove makes more noise than the weathercock on the roof oh then the comparison is not in our favour and in my opinion Mr. Atkins enjoys life better than I do. You shall see them all again, Bosun. Atkins, the Green Comorant, and the Kerguelen. For God's sake, do not let yourself grow downhearted. And if you, a sensible and courageous man, despair already. Oh, if I were the only one, it would not be half so bad as it is. The whole crew does not despair, surely. Yes and no, replied Hurlygurly, for I know some who are not at all satisfied. Has Hearn begun his mischief again? Is he exciting his companion? Not openly, at least, Mr. Jorling, and since I have kept him under my eye, I have neither seen nor heard anything. Besides, he knows what awaits him if he budges. I believe I am not mistaken. The sly dog has changed his tactics. But what does not astonish me in him astonishes me in Martin Holt. What do you mean, Bosun? That they seem to be on good terms with each other. See how Hearn seeks out Martin Holt, talks to him frequently, and Holt does not treat his overtures unfavorably. Martin Holt is not one of those who would listen to Hearn's advice, or follow it if he tried to provoke rebellion amongst the crew. No doubt, Mr. Jorling. However, I don't fancy seeing them so much together. Hearn is a dangerous and unscrupulous individual, and most likely Martin Holt does not distrust him sufficiently. He is wrong, Bosun. And, wait a moment, do you know what they were talking about the other day when I overheard a few scraps of their conversation? I could not possibly guess until you tell me, Hurlygurly. Well, while they were conversing on the bridge of the Halbrane, I heard them talking about Dirk Peters, and Hearn was saying, You must not owe a grudge to the half-breed Master Holt, because he refused to respond to your advances and accept your thanks. If he be only a sort of brute, he possesses plenty of courage and has shown it in getting you out of a bad corner at the risk of his life and besides do not forget that he formed part of the crew of the grampus and your brother ned if i don't mistake he said that boatswain he spoke of the grampus i exclaimed yes of the grampus and of ned holt precisely mr jorling and what answer did martin holt make he replied i don't even know under what circumstances my unfortunate brother perished was it during a revolt on board? Brave man that he was, he would not betray his captain, and perhaps he was massacred. Did Hearn dwell on this, Bosun? Yes, but he added, It is very sad for you, Master Holt. The captain of the Grampus, according to what I have been told, was abandoned, being placed in a small boat with one or two of his men, and who knows if your brother was not along with them. And what next? Then, Mr. Jorling, he added, did it never occur to you to ask Dirk Peters to enlighten you on the subject? Yes, once, replied Martin Holt. I questioned the half-breed about it, and never did I see a man so overcome. He replied in so low a voice that I could scarcely understand him. 
I know not, I know not. And he ran away with his face buried in his hands. Was that all you heard of the conversation, Boson? That was all, Mr. Jorling, and I thought it so strange that I wished to inform you of it. And what conclusion did you draw from it? Nothing, except that I look upon the sealing-master as a scoundrel of deepest dye, perfectly capable of working in secret for some evil purpose with which he would like to associate Martin Holt. What did Hearn's new attitude mean? Why did he strive to gain Martin Holt, one of the best of the crew, as an ally? Why did he recall the scenes of the Grampus? Did Hearn know more of this matter of Dirk Peters and Ned Holt than the others? this secret which the half-breed and i believed ourselves to be the sole possessors the doubt caused me serious uneasiness however i took care not to say anything of it to dirk peters if he had for a moment suspected that hearne spoke of what happened on board the grampus if he had heard that the rascal as hurly-gurly called him and not without reason constantly talked to martin holt about his brother i really do not know what would have happened in short, whatever the intentions of Hearn might be, it was dreadful to think that our sailing-master, on whose fidelity Captain Len Guy ought to be able to count, was in conspiracy with him. The sealing-master must have a strong motive for acting in this way. What it was I could not imagine. Although the crew seemed to have abandoned every thought of mutiny, a strict watch was kept, especially on Hearn. Besides, the situation must soon change at least so far as the schooner was concerned. Two days afterwards the work was finished, the caulking operations were completed, and also the slide for lowering the vessel to the base of our floating mountain. Just now the upper portion of the ice had been slightly softened, so that this last work did not entail much labour for pickaxe or spade. The course ran obliquely round the west side of the berg, so that the incline should not be too great at any point. With cables properly fixed, the launch, it seemed, might be effected without any mishap. I rather feared lest the melting of the ice should make the gliding less smooth at the lower part of the berg. Needless to say, the cargo, masting, anchors, chains, etc., had not been put on board. The hull was quite heavy enough, and not easily moved, so it was necessary to lighten it as much as possible. When the schooner was again in its element, the loading could be effected in a few days. On the afternoon of the 28th, the finishing touches were given. It was necessary to put supports for the sides of the slide in some places where the ice had melted quickly. Then everyone was allowed to rest from 4 o'clock p.m. The captain had double rations served out to all hands, and while they merited this extra supply of spirits, they had indeed worked hard during the week. I repeated that every sign of mutiny had disappeared. The crew thought of nothing except this great operation of the launching. The halbrain in the sea would mean departure. It would also mean return. For Dirk Peters and me it would be the definite abandonment of Arthur Pym. That night the temperature was at the highest we had so far experienced. The thermometer registered 53 degrees, 11.67 degrees Celsius, above zero. So, although the sun was nearing the horizon, the ice was melting, and thousands of small streams flowed in every direction. The early birds woke at four o'clock, and I was one of their number. I had scarcely slept, and I fancy that Dirk Peters did not sleep much, haunted as he was by the sad thought of having to turn back. 
the launch was to take place at ten o'clock taking every possible difficulty into account and allowing for the minutest precautions the captain hoped that it would be completed before the close of the day every one believed that by evening the schooner would be at the foot of the berg of course we all had to lend a hand to this difficult task to each man a special duty was assigned some were employed to facilitate the sliding with wooden rollers if necessary others to moderate the speed of the hull in case it became too great by means of hawsers and cables we breakfasted at nine o'clock in the tents our sailors were perfectly confident and could not refrain from drinking success to the event and although this was a little premature we added our hurrahs to theirs success seemed very nearly assured as the captain and the mate had worked out the matter so carefully and skilfully at last we were about to leave our encampment and take up our stations some of the sailors were there already when cries of amazement and fear were raised what a frightful scene and short as it may have been what an impression of terror it left on our minds one of the enormous blocks which formed the bank of the mud-bed where the halbrane lie having become loose owing to the melting of its base had slipped and was bounding over the others down the incline in another moment the schooner being no longer retained in position was swinging on this declivity on board on deck in front there were two sailors rogers and gretchen in vain did the unfortunate men try to jump over the bulwarks they had not time and they were dragged away in this dreadful fall yes i saw it i saw the schooner topple over slide down first on its right side crush one of the men who delayed too long about jumping to one side then bound from block to block and finally fling itself into space in another moment the halbrane staved in broken up with gaping planks and shattered ribs had sunk causing a tremendous jet of water to spout up at the foot of the iceberg horrified yes indeed we were horrified when the schooner carried off as though by an avalanche had disappeared in the abyss not a particle of our halbrane remained not even a wreck a minute ago she was one hundred feet in the air now she was five hundred in the depths of the sea yes we were so stupefied that we were unable to think of the dangers to come our amazement was that of people who cannot believe their eyes prostration succeeded as a natural consequence there was not a word spoken we stood motionless with our feet rooted to the icy soil no words could express the horror of our situation as for west when the schooner had disappeared in the abyss i saw big tears fall from his eyes the halbrane that he loved so much was now an unknown quantity yes our stout-hearted mate wept three of our men had perished and in what frightful fashion i had seen rogers and gretchen two of our most faithful sailors stretch out their hands in despair as they were knocked about by the rebounding of the schooner and finally sink with her the other man from the falklands an american was crushed in its rush his shapeless form lay in a pool of blood three new victims within the last ten days had to be inscribed on the register of those who died during this fatal voyage ah fortune had favoured us up to the hour when the halbrane was snatched from her own element but her hand was now against us and was not this last the worst blow 
must it not prove the stroke of death the silence was broken by a tumult of despairing voices whose despair was justified indeed by this irreparable misfortune and i am sure that more than one thought it would have been better to have been on the halbrane as she rebounded off the side of the iceberg everything would have been over then as it was all over with rogers and gratin this foolish expedition would thus have come to a conclusion worthy of such rashness and imprudence at last the instinct of self-preservation triumphed and except hearne who stood some distance off and affected silence all the men shouted to the boat to the boat these unfortunate fellows were out of their mind terror led them astray they rushed towards the crag where our one boat which could not hold them all had been sheltered during the unloading of the schooner captain len guy and jem west rushed after them i joined them immediately followed by the boatswain we were armed and resolved to make use of our arms we had to prevent these furious men from seizing the boat which did not belong to a few but to all hallo sailors cried the captain hallo repeated west stop there or we fire on the first who goes a step further both threatened the men with their pistols the boatswain pointed his gun at them i held my rifle ready to fire it was in vain the frenzied men heard nothing would not hear anything and one of them fell struck by the mate's bullet just as he was crossing the last block he was unable to catch on to the bank with his hands and slipping on the frozen slope he disappeared in the abyss was this the beginning of a massacre would others let themselves be killed at this place would the old hands side with the newcomers at that moment i remarked that hardy martin holt francis bury and stern hesitated about coming over to our side while Hearn, still standing motionless at some distance, gave no encouragement to the rebels. However, we could not allow them to become masters of the boat, to bring it down, to embark ten or twelve men, and to abandon us to our certain fate on this iceberg. They had almost reached the boat, heedless of danger and deaf to threats, when a second report was heard, and one of the sailors fell by a bullet from the boatswain's gun one American and one Fugian, less to be numbered amongst the sealing-master's partisans. Then, in front of the boat, a man appeared. It was Dirk Peters, who had climbed the opposite slope. The half-breed put one of his enormous hands on the stern, and with the other made a sign to the furious men to clear off. Dirk Peters being there, we no longer needed our arms, as he alone would suffice to protect the boat and indeed as five or six of the sailors were advancing he went up to them caught hold of the nearest by the belt lifted him up and sent him flying ten paces off the wretched man not being able to catch hold of anything would have rebounded into the sea had not hearne seized him owing to the half-breed's intervention the revolt was instantly quelled besides we were coming up to the boat and with us those of our men whose hesitation had not lasted long no matter the others were still thirteen to our ten captain len guy made his appearance anger shone in his eyes and with him was west quite unmoved words failed the captain for some moments but his look said what his tongue could not utter at length in a terrible voice he said i ought to treat you as evil-doers 
However, I will only consider you as madmen. The boat belongs to everybody. It is now our only means of salvation. And you wanted to steal it, to steal it like cowards. Listen attentively to what I say for the last time. This boat, belonging to the Halbrane, is now the Halbrane herself. I am captain of it, and let him who disobey me beware. With these last words, Captain Len Guy looked at Hearn, for whom this warning was expressly meant. The sealing master had not appeared in the last scene, not openly at least, but nobody doubted that he had urged his comrades to make off with the boat, and that he had every intention of doing the same again. "'Now to the camp,' said the captain, "'and you, Dirk Peters, remain here.' The half-breed's only reply was to nod his big head and betake himself to his post. The crew returned to the camp without the least hesitation. Some lay down in their sleeping-places, others wandered about. Hearn neither tried to join them nor go near Martin Holt. Now that the sailors were reduced to idleness, there was nothing to do except to ponder on our critical situation, and invent some means of getting out of it. The captain, the mate, and the boatswain formed a council, and I took part in their deliberations. Captain Len began by saying, "'We have protected our boat, and we shall continue to protect it until death declared west who knows said i whether we shall not soon be forced to embark in that case replied the captain as all cannot fit into it it will be necessary to make a selection lots shall determine which of us are to go and i shall not ask to be treated differently from the others we have not come to that luckily replied the boatswain the iceberg is solid and there is no fear of its melting before winter. No, assented West, that is not to be feared. What it behooves us to do is, while watching the boat, to keep an eye on the provisions. We are lucky, added Hurligurly, to have put our cargo in safety. Poor dear Halbrane, she will remain in these seas like the Jane, her elder sister. Yes, without doubt, and I thought so for many reasons, the one destroyed by the savage of Salal, the other by one of these catastrophes that no human power can prevent you are right replied the captain and we must prevent our men from plundering we are sure of enough provisions for one year without counting what we may get by fishing and it is so much more than necessary captain to keep a close watch because i have seen some hovering about the spirit casks i will see to that replied west but I then asked, had we not better prepare ourselves for the fact that we may be compelled to winter on this iceberg? May heaven avert such a terrible probability, replied the captain. After all, if it were necessary, we could get through it, Mr. Jorling, said the boatswain. We could hollow out sheltering places in the ice so as to be able to bear the extreme cold of the pole, and so long as we had sufficient to appease our hunger— at this moment the horrid recollection of the grampus came to my mind. The scenes in which Dirk Peters had killed Ned Holt, the brother of our sailing-master. Should we ever be in such extremity? Would it not, before we proceed to set up winter quarters for seven or eight months, be better to leave the iceberg altogether, if such a thing were possible? I called the attention of Captain Langey and West to this point. This was a difficult question to answer, 
and a long silence preceded the reply. At last the captain said, "'Yes, that would be the best resolution to come to, and if our boat could hold us all, with the provisions necessary for a voyage that might last three or four weeks, I would not hesitate to put to sea now and return towards the north.' But I made them observe that we should be obliged to direct our course contrary to wind and current. Our schooner herself could hardly have succeeded in doing this, whilst it continued towards the south. "'Towards the south?' repeated the captain, who looked at me as though he sought to read my thoughts. "'Why not?' I answered. "'If the iceberg had not been stopped in its passage, perhaps it would have drifted to some land in that direction, and might not our boat accomplished what it would have done?' The captain, shaking his head, answered nothing. West was also silent. "'Eh, our iceberg will end by raising its anchor,' replied Hurlygurly. "'It does not hold to the bottom, like the Falklands or the Kerguelens. So the safest course is to wait, as the boat cannot carry twenty-three, the number of our party.' I dwelt upon the fact that it was not necessary for all twenty-three to embark. It would be sufficient, I said, for five or six of us to reconnoitre further south for twelve or fifteen miles. South, repeated Captain Lenguy. Undoubtedly, Captain, I added, you probably know what the geographers frankly admit, that the Antarctic regions are formed by a capped continent. Geographers know nothing and can know nothing about it, replied West coldly. It is a pity, said I, that as we are so near we should not attempt to solve this question of a polar continent. I thought it was better not to insist just at present. End of chapter 20, part 2「Chapter 20, part 3 of An Antarctic Mystery, or the Sphinx of the Icefields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Chapter 20, Part 3, Unmerciful Disaster. Moreover, there would be danger in sending out our only boat on a voyage of discovery, as the current might carry it too far, or it might not find us again in the same place. And indeed, if the iceberg happened to get loose at the bottom, and to resume its interrupted drift, what would become of the men in the boat? The drawback was that the boat was too small to carry us all, with the necessary provisions. Now, of the seniors, there remained ten men, counting Dirk Peters. Of the new men, there were thirteen, twenty-three in all. The largest number our boat could hold was from eleven to twelve persons. Then eleven of us, indicated by lot, would have to remain on this island of ice. And what would become of them? With regard to this, Hurlygurly made a sound observation. After all, he said, I don't know that those who would embark would be better off than those who remained. I am so doubtful of the result that I would willingly give up my place to anyone who wanted it. Perhaps the boatswain was right, but in my own mind, when I asked that the boat might be utilized, it was for the purpose of reconnoitering the iceberg. We finally decided to arrange everything with a view to wintering out, even were our ice mountain again to drift. "'We may be sure that will be agreed to by our men,' declared Hurlygurly. "'What is necessary must be done,' replied the mate, "'and to-day we must set to work.' 
that was a sad day on which we began our preparations. Endicott, the cook, was the only man who submitted without murmuring. As a negro who cares little about the future, shallow and frivolous like all his race, he resigned himself easily to his fate, and that is, perhaps, true philosophy. Besides, when it came to the question of cooking, it mattered very little to him whether it was here or there, so long as his stoves were set up somewhere. So he said to his friend the mate, with his broad negro smile, "'Luckily my kitchen did not go off with the schooner, and you shall see, hurly-gurly, if I do not make up dishes just as good as on board the Halbrane, so long as provisions don't grow scarce, of course.' "'Well, they will not be wanting for some time to come,' replied the boatswain. "'We need not fear hunger, but cold, such cold as would reduce you to an icicle the minute you cease to warm your feet.' cold that makes your skin crack and your skull split even if we had some hundreds of tons of coal but all things being well calculated there is only just what will do to boil this large kettle and that is sacred cried endicott touching his forbidden the kitchen before all and that is the reason why it never strikes you to pity yourself you old nigger you can always make sure of keeping your feet warm at your oven what would you have boatswain you are a first-rate cook, or are you not? When you are, you take advantage of it, but I will remember to keep you a little place before my stove. That's good, that's good, Endicott. Each one shall have his turn. There is no privilege even for a boatswain. On the whole, it is better not to have fear famine. One can fight against the cold. We shall dig holes in the iceberg and cuddle ourselves up there. And why should we not have a general dwelling-room? We could make a cave for ourselves with pickaxes. I have heard tell that ice preserves heat. Well, let it preserve ours, and that is all I ask of it. The hour had come for us to return to the camp and to seek our sleeping places. Dirk Peters alone refused to be relieved of his duty as watchman of the boat, and nobody thought of disputing the post with him. Captain Len Guy and West did not enter the tents until they had made certain that Hearn and his companions had gone to their usual place of rest. I came back likewise and went to bed. I could not tell how long I had been sleeping, nor what time it was, when I found myself rolling on the ground after a violent shock. What could be happening? Was it another capsize of the iceberg? We were all up in a second, then outside the tents in the full light of a night in the polar regions. A second floating mass of enormous size had just struck our iceberg, which had hoisted the anchor, as the sailors say, and was drifting towards the south. An unhoped-for change in the situation had taken place. What were to be the consequences of our being no longer cast away at that place? The current was now carrying us in the direction of the pole. The first feeling of joy, inspired by this conviction, was, however, succeeded by all the terrors of the unknown. And what an unknown! Dirk Peters was only entirely rejoiced that we had resumed the route, which he believed would lead us to the discovery of traces of his poor Pym. Far other ideas occupied the minds of his companions. Captain Len Guy no longer entertained any hope of rescuing his countrymen, and having reached the condition of despair, he was bound by his duty to take his crew back to the north, so as to clear the Antarctic Circle, while the season rendered it possible to do so and we were being carried away towards the south naturally enough we were all deeply impressed by the fearfulness of our position which may be summed up in a few words we were no longer cast away with a possible ship 
but the tenants of a floating iceberg, with no hope but that our monster tenement might encounter one of the whaling ships whose business in the deep waters lies between the Orkneys, New Georgia, and the Sandwich Islands. A quantity of things had been thrown into the ice by the collision which had set our iceberg afloat, but these were chiefly articles belonging to the Halbrane. Owing to the precaution that had been taken on the previous day, when the cargo was stowed away in the clefts, it had been only slightly damaged. What would become of us? Had all our reserves been swallowed up in that grim encounter? Now, the two icebergs formed but one, which was travelling south at the rate of two miles an hour. At this rate, thirty hours would suffice to bring us to the point of the axis at which the terrestrial meridians unite. Did the current which was carrying us along pass on to the pole itself, or was there any land which might arrest our progress? This was another question, and I discussed it with the boatswain. "'Nobody knows, Mr. Jorling,' was Hurligerly's reply. "'If the current goes to the pole, we shall go there, and if it doesn't, we shan't. An iceberg isn't a ship, and it has neither sails nor helm. It goes as the drift takes it.' "'That's true, boatswain, and therefore I had the idea that if two or three of us were to embark in the boat—' "'Ah, you still hold to your notion of the boat?' "'Certainly, for, if there is land somewhere, is it not possible that the people of the Jane—' "'Have come upon it, Mr. Jorling, at four thousand miles from Salal Island?' "'Who knows, Boson? "'That may be, but allow me to say that your argument will be reasonable when the land comes in sight, if ever it does so. "'Our captain will see what ought to be done, and he will remember that time presses. "'We cannot delay in these waters, and, after all—' The one thing of real importance to us is to get out of the polar circle before the winter makes it impassable. There was good sense in Hurligerly's words. I could not deny the fact. During that day the greater part of the cargo was placed in the interior of a vast cave-like fissure in the side of the iceberg, where, even in the case of a second collision, casks and barrels would be in safety. Our men then assisted Endicott to set up his cooking-stove between two blocks, so that it was firmly fixed, and they heaped up a great mass of coals close to it. No murmurs, no recriminations, disturbed these labours. It was evident that silence was deliberately maintained. The crew obeyed the captain and West, because they gave no orders, but such as were of urgent necessity. But afterwards would these men allow the authority of their leaders to be uncontested? How long would the recruits from the Falklands, who were already exasperated by the disasters of our enterprise, resist their desire to seize upon the boat and escape? I did not think they would make the attempt, however, so long as our iceberg should continue to drift, for the boat could not outstrip its progress. But if it were to run aground once more, to strike upon the coast of an island or a continent, what would not these unfortunate creatures do to escape the horrors of wintering under such conditions? In the afternoon, during the hour of rest, allowed to the crew, I had a second conversation with Dirk Peters. I had taken my customary seat at the top of the iceberg, and had occupied it for half an hour, being, as may be supposed, deep in thought, when I saw the half-breed coming quickly up the slope. We had exchanged hardly a dozen words since the iceberg had begun to move again, when Dirk Peters came up to me, he did not address me at first, and was so intent on his thoughts that I was not quite sure he saw me, 
At length he leaned back against an ice-block and spoke. "'Mr. Jorling,' he said, "'you remember in your cabin in the Halbrane "'I told you the affair of the Grampus?' "'I remembered well. "'I told you that Parker's name was not Parker, "'that it was Holt, and that he was Ned Holt's brother?' "'I know, Dirk Peters,' I replied. "'But why do you refer to that sad story again?' "'Why, Mr. Jorling, have not... "'Have you never said anything to anybody?' "'Not to anybody,' I protested.' How could you suppose I should be so ill-advised, so imprudent, as to divulge your secret, a secret which ought never to pass our lips, a dead secret? Dead, yes, dead, and yet, understand me, it seems to me that among the crew something is known. I instantly recalled to mind what the boatswain had told me concerning a certain conversation in which he had overheard Hearn prompting Martin Holt to ask the half-breed what were the circumstances of his brother's death on board the Grampus? Had a portion of the secret got out, or was this apprehension on the part of Dirk Peters purely imaginary? "'Explain yourself,' I said. "'Understand me, Mr. Shirling. I'm a bad hand at explaining. Yes, yesterday I have, I have thought of nothing else since. Martin Holt took me aside, far from the others, and told me that he wished to speak to me. Of the Grampus?' Of the Grampus, yes, and of his brother Ned Holt. For the first time he uttered that name before me. And yet we have sailed together for nearly three months. The half-breed's voice was so changed that I could hardly hear him. It seemed to me, he resumed, that in Martin's Holt's mind, no, I was not mistaken, there was something like a suspicion. But tell me what he said. Tell me exactly what he asked you. What is it? I felt sure that the question put by Martin Holt, whatsoever its bearing, had been inspired by Hearn. Nevertheless, as I considered it well, that the half-breed should know nothing of the sealing-master's disquieting and inexplicable intervention in this tragic affair, I decided upon concealing it from him. He asked me, Dirk Peters replied, did I not remember Ned Holt of the Grampus, and whether he had perished in the fight with the mutineers or in the shipwreck? whether he was one of the men who had been abandoned with Captain Bernard. In short, he asked me if I could tell him how his brother died. Ah, uh, how! No idea could be conveyed of the horror with which the half-breed uttered words which revealed a profound loathing of himself. And what answer did you make to Martin Holt? None, none. You should have said that Ned Holt perished in the wreck of the brig. I could not, understand me, I could not, that two brothers are so like each other. In Martin Holt I seemed to see Ned Holt. I was afraid. I got away from him. The half-breed drew himself up with a sudden movement, and I sat thinking, leaning my head on my hands. These tardy questions of Holt's respecting his brother were put, I had no doubt whatsoever, at the instigation of Hearn. But what was his motive? And was it at the Falklands that he discovered the secret of Dirk Peters? I had not breathed a word on the subject to any one. To the second question no answer suggested itself. The first involved a serious issue. Did the sealing-master merely desire to gratify his enmity against Dirk Peters, the only one of the Falkland sailors who had always taken the side of Captain Len Guy, and who had prevented the seizure of the boat by Hearn and his companions? Did he hope, by arousing the wrath and vengeance of Martin Holt, to detach the sailing-master from his allegiance, 
and induce him to become an accomplice in Hearn's own designs? And, in fact, when it was a question of sailing the boat in these seas, had he not imperative need of Martin Holt, one of the best seamen of the Halbrane? A man who would succeed where Hearn and his companions would fail, if they had only themselves to depend upon? I became lost in this labyrinth of hypotheses, and it must be admitted that its complications added largely to the troubles of an already complicated position. When I raised my eyes, Dirk Peters had disappeared. He had said what he came to say, and he now knew that I had not betrayed his confidence. The customary precautions were taken for the night, no individual being allowed to remain outside the camp, with the exception of the half-breed who was in charge of the boat. The following day was the 31st of January. I pushed back the canvas of the tent, which I shared with Captain Len Guy and West, respectively as each succeeded the other on release from the alternate watch very early and experienced a severe disappointment mist everywhere nay more than mist a thick yellow mouldy smelling fog and more than this again the temperature had fallen sensibly this was probably a forewarning of the austral winter the summit of our ice mountain was lost in vapour in a fog which would not resolve itself into rain but would continue to muffle up the horizon. "'Bad luck,' said the boatswain. "'For now, if we were to pass by land, we should not perceive it. And our drift? More considerable than yesterday, Mr. Shorling. The captain has sounded, and he makes a speed no less than between three and four miles.' "'And what do you conclude from this?' "'I conclude that we must be within a narrower sea, since the current is so strong. I should not be surprised.' if we had land on both sides of us within ten or fifteen miles. Then this would be a wide strait that cuts the Antarctic continent? Yes, our captain is of that opinion. And, holding that opinion, is he not going to make an attempt to reach one or other of the coasts of this strait? And how? With the boat. Risk the boat in the midst of this fog? exclaimed the boatswain as he crossed his arms. What are you thinking of, Mr. Jorling? Can we cast anchor to wait for it? And all the chances would be that we should never see it again. Ah, uh, if we only had the Halbrane. But there was no longer a Halbrane. In spite of the difficulty of the ascent through the half-condensed vapour, I climbed to the top of the iceberg. But when I had gained that eminence, I strove in vain to pierce the impenetrable grey mantle in which the waters were wrapped. I remained there, hustled by the northeast wind, which was beginning to blow freshly, and might perhaps rend the fog asunder. But no, fresh vapours accumulated around our floating refuge, driven up by the immense ventilation of the open sea. Under the double action of the atmospheric and Antarctic currents, we drifted more and more rapidly, and I perceived a sort of shudder pass throughout the vast bulk of the iceberg. Then it was that I felt myself under the dominion of a sort of hallucination, one of those hallucinations which must have troubled the mind of Arthur Pym. It seemed to me that I was losing myself in this extraordinary personality. At last, I was beholding all that he had seen. Was not that impenetrable mist, the curtain of vapours, which he had seen in his delirium? I peered into it seeking for those luminous rays which had streaked the sky from east to west. I sought it in its depths for that limitless cataract. 
rolling in silence from the height of some immense rampart, lost in the vastness of the zenith. I sought for the awful white giant of the South Pole. At length reason resumed her sway. This visionary madness, intoxicating while it lasted, passed off by degrees, and I descended the slope to our camp. The whole day passed without a change. The fog never once lifted to give us a glimpse outside of its muffling folds, and if the iceberg, which had travelled forty miles since the previous day, had passed by the extremity of the axis of the earth, we should never know it. End of chapter 20, part 3「Chapter twenty one of an Antarctic Mystery or the Sphinx of the Ice Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter twenty one Amid the Mists. So this was the sum of all our efforts, trials, and disappointments. Not to speak of the destruction of the Halbrane. The expedition had already cost nine lives. From thirty-two men who embarked on the schooner, our number was reduced to twenty-three. How low was that figure yet to fall? Between the South Pole and Antarctic Circle lay twenty degrees, and those would have to be cleared in a month or six weeks at the most. If not, the iceberg barrier would be reformed and closed up. As for wintering in that part of the Antarctic Circle, not a man of us could have survived it. Besides, we had lost all hope of rescuing the survivors of the Jane, and the sole desire of the crew was to escape as quickly as possible from the awful solitudes of the south. Our drift, which had been south, down to the pole, was now north, and, if that direction should continue, perhaps we might be favoured with such good fortune as would make up for all the evil that had befallen us. In any case, there was nothing for it but, in familiar phrase, to let ourselves go. The mist did not lift during the end, 3rd and 4th February, and it would have been difficult to make out the rate of progress of our iceberg since it had passed the pole. Captain Len Guy, however, and West considered themselves safe in reckoning it at 250 miles. The current did not seem to have diminished in speed or changed its course. It was now beyond a doubt that we were moving between two halves of a continent, one on the east, the other on the west which formed the vast Antarctic region, and I thought it was a matter of great regret that we could not get aground on one or the other side of this vast strait, whose surface would presently be solidified by the coming of winter. When I expressed this sentiment to Captain Len Guy, he made me the only logical answer. "'What would you have, Mr. Jorling? We are powerless. There is nothing to be done, and the persistent fog is the worst part of our ill luck.' I no longer know where we are. It is impossible to take an observation, and this befalls us just as the sun is about to disappear for long months. Let me come back to the question of the boat, said I. For the last time could we not with the boat. Go on a discovery cruise? Can you think of such a thing? That would be an imprudence I would not commit, even though the crew would allow me. I was on the point of exclaiming, and what if your brother and your countrymen have found refuge on some spot of the land that undoubtedly lies about us? But I restrained myself. Of what avail was it to reawaken our captain's grief? 
he too must have contemplated this eventuality and he had not renounced his purpose of further search without being fully convinced of the folly of a last attempt during those three days of fog i had not caught sight of dirk peters or rather he had made no attempt to approach but had remained inflexibly at his post by the boat martin holt's question respecting his brother ned seemed to indicate that his secret was known at least in part and the half-breed held himself more than ever aloof sleeping while the others watched and watching in their time of sleep i even wondered whether he regretted having confided in me and fancied that he had aroused my repugnance by his sad story if so he was mistaken i deeply pitied the poor half-breed nothing could exceed the melancholy monotony of the hours which we passed in the midst of a fog so thick that the wind could not lift its curtain the position of the iceberg could not be ascertained it went with the current at a like speed and had it been motionless there would have been no appreciable difference for us for the wind had fallen at least so we supposed and not a breath was stirring the flame of a torch held up in the air did not flicker the silence of space was broken only by the clangor of sea-birds which came in muffled croaking tones through the stifling atmosphere of vapor petrels and albatross swept the top of the iceberg where they kept a useless watch in their flight in what direction were those swift-winged creatures perhaps already driven towards the confines of the arctic region but the approach of winter bound we could not tell one day the boatswain who was determined to solve this question if possible having mounted to the extreme top not without risk of breaking his neck came into such violent contact with a quebranta hasos a sort of gigantic petrel measuring twelve feet with spread wings that he was flung on his back curse the bird he said on his return to the camp addressing the observation to me i have had a narrow escape a thump and down i went sprawling i saved myself i don't know how for i was all but over the side those icebergs you know slip through one's fingers like water i called out to the bird can't you even look before you you fool but what was the good of that the big blunderer did not even beg my pardon in the afternoon of the same day our ears were assailed by a hideous braying from below hurly-gurly remarked that as there was no asses to treat us to the concert it must have been given by penguins hitherto these countless dwellers in the polar regions had not thought proper to accompany us on our moving island we had not even seen one either at the foot of the iceberg or on the drifting packs there could be no doubt that they were there in thousands for the music was unmistakably that of a multitude of performers now those birds frequent by choice the edges of the coasts of islands and continents in high latitudes or the ice-fields in their neighbourhood was not their presence an indication that land was near i asked captain len guy what he thought of the presence of these birds i think what you think mr jorling he replied since we have been drifting none of them have taken refuge on the iceberg and here they are now in crowds if we may judge by their deafening cries from whence do they come no doubt from land which is probably near is this west's opinion yes mr jorling and you know he is not given to vain imaginations certainly not and then another thing has struck both him and me 
which has apparently escaped your attention. It is that the braying of the penguins is mingled with a sound, like the lowing of cattle. Listen, and you will readily distinguish it. I listened, and sure enough, the orchestra was more full than I had supposed. I hear the lowing plainly, I said. There are, then, seals and walruses also in the sea at the base. That is certain, Mr. Jorling, and I conclude from the fact that those animals, both birds and mammals, very rare since we left Salal Island, frequent the waters into which the currents have carried us. Of course, Captain, of course. Oh, what a misfortune it is that we should be surrounded by this impenetrable fog, which prevents us from getting down to the base of the iceberg. There, no doubt, we should discover whether there are seaweed drifts around us. If that be so, it would be another sign. Why not try, Captain? No, no, Mr. Jorling, that might lead to falls, and I will not permit anybody to leave the camp. If land be there, I imagine our iceberg will strike it before long. And if it does not? If it does not, how are we to make it? I thought to myself that the boat might very well be used in the latter case, but Captain Len Guy preferred to wait, and perhaps this was the wiser course under our circumstances. At eight o'clock that evening, the half-condensed mist was so compact that it was difficult to walk through. The composition of the air seemed to be changed, as though it were passing into a solid state. It was not possible to discern whether the fog had any effect upon the compass. I knew the matter had been studied by meteorologists, and that they believe they may safely affirm that the needle is not affected by this condition of the atmosphere. I will add here that since we had left the South Pole behind, no confidence could be placed in the indications of the compass. It had gone wild at the approach to the magnetic pole, to which we were no doubt on the way. Nothing could be known, therefore, concerning the course of the iceberg. The sun did not quite set below the horizon at this period, yet the waters were wrapped in tolerably deep darkness at nine o'clock in the evening, when the muster of the crew took place. On this occasion each man, as usual, answered to his name except Dirk Peters. The call was repeated in the loudest of Hurlygurley's stentorian tones. No reply. "'Has nobody seen Dirk Peters during the day?' inquired the captain. "'Nobody,' answered the boatswain. "'Can anything have happened to him?' "'Don't be afraid,' cried the boatswain. "'Dirk Peters is in his element, and as much at his ease in the fog as a polar bear. He has got out of one bad scrape. He will get out of a second. I let Hurlygurley have his say, knowing well why the half-breed kept out of the way. That night none of us, I am sure, could sleep. We were smothered in the tents for lack of oxygen, and we were all more or less under the influence of a strange sort of presentiment, as though our fate were about to change, for better or worse, if indeed it could be worse. The night wore on without any alarm, and at six o'clock in the morning each of us came out to breathe a more wholesome air. The state of things was unchanged. The density of the fog was extraordinary. It was, however, found that the barometer had risen. Too quickly, it is true, for the rise to be serious. Presently, other signs of change became evident. The wind, which was growing colder, a south wind, since we had passed beyond the south pole, began to blow a full gale, and the noises from below were heard more distinctly through the space swept by the atmospheric currents. 
At nine o'clock the iceberg doffed its cap of vapour quite suddenly, producing an indescribable transformation scene which no fairy's wand could have accomplished in less time or with greater success. In a few moments the sky was clear to the extreme verge of the horizon, and the sea reappeared, illumined by the oblique rays of the sun, which now rose only a few degrees above it. A rolling swell of the waves bathed the base of our iceberg in white foam, as it drifted, together with a great multitude of floating mountains, under the double action of wind and current, on a course inclining to the nor'-nor'-east. "'Land!' This cry came from the summit of the moving mountain, and Dirk Peters was revealed to our sight. Standing on the outermost block, his hands stretched towards the north. The half-breed was not mistaken. The land this time, yes, it was land. Its distant heights, of a blackish hue, rose within three or four miles of us. Eighty-six degrees, twelve minutes, south latitude. One hundred and fourteen degrees, seventeen minutes, east longitude. The iceberg was nearly four degrees beyond the Antarctic Pole, and from the western longitudes that our schooner had followed tracing the course of the Jane, we had passed into the eastern longitudes. End of chapter 21「Twenty two of an Antarctic Mystery, or the Sphinx of the Ice Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 22. In Camp. A little afternoon, the iceberg was within a mile of the land. After dinner, the crew climbed up to the topmost block, on which Dirk Peters was stationed. On our approach, the half-breed descended the opposite slope, and when I reached the top he was no longer to be seen. The land on the north evidently formed a continent or island of considerable extent. On the west there was a sharply projecting cape, surmounted by a sloping height which resembled an enormous seal's head on the side view. Then, beyond that, was a wide stretch of sea. On the east the land was prolonged out of sight. Each one of us took in the position. It depended on the current whether it would carry the iceberg into an eddy which might drive it on the coast, or continue to drift it towards the north, which was the more admissible hypothesis. Captain Len Guy, West, Hurley-Gurley, and I talked over the matter while the crew discussed it amongst themselves. Finally it was agreed that the current tended rather to carry the iceberg towards the northern point of land. After all, said Captain Len Guy, if it is habitable during the months of the summer season, it does not look like being inhabited, since we cannot descry a human being on the shore. Let us bear in mind, Captain, said I, that the iceberg is not calculated to attract attention as the Halbrane would have done. Evidently, Mr. Jorling, and the natives, if there were any, would have been collected on the beach to see the Halbrane already. We must not conclude, Captain, because we do not see any natives. Certainly not, Mr. Jorling, but you will agree with me that the aspect of this land is very unlike that of Salal Island, when the Jane reached it. There is nothing here but desolation and barrenness. I acknowledge that, barrenness and desolation, that is all. Nevertheless, I want to ask you whether it is your intention to go ashore, Captain. With the boat? 
with the boat, should the current carry our iceberg away from the land. We have not an hour to lose, Mr. Jorling, and the delay of a few hours might condemn us to a cruel winter's day if we arrive too late at the iceberg barrier. And, considering the distance, we are not too soon, observed West. I grant it, I replied, still persisting, but to leave this land behind us without ever having set foot on it, without having made sure that it does not preserve the traces of an encampment, if your brother, Captain, his companions... Captain Len Guy shook his head. How could the castaways have supported life in this desolate region for several months? Besides, the British flag was hoisted on the summit of the iceberg, and William Guy would have recognized it and come down to the shore had he been living. No one, no one. At this moment, West, who had been observing certain points of approach, said, Let us wait a little before we come to a decision. In less than an hour we shall be able to decide. Our speed is slackening, it seems to me, and it is possible that an eddy may bring us obliquely to the coast. That is my opinion, too, said the boatswain. and if our floating machine is not stationary, it is nearly so. It seems to be turning around. West and Hurligurly were not mistaken. For some reason or other, the iceberg was getting out of the course which it had followed continuously. A gyratory movement had succeeded to that of drifting owing to the action of an eddy which set towards the coast. Besides, several ice-mountains in front of us had just run aground on the edge of the shore. It was then useless to discuss whether we should take to the boat or not. According as we approached, the desolation of the land became more and more apparent, and the prospect of enduring six months wintering there would have appalled the stoutest hearts. At five in the afternoon, the iceberg plunged into a deep rift in the coast, ending in a long point on the right, and there stuck fast. "'On shore! On shore!' burst from every man, like a single exclamation, and the men were already hurrying down the slope of the iceberg, when West commanded, "'Wait for orders!' Some hesitation was shown, especially on the part of Hearn and several of his comrades. Then the instinct of discipline prevailed and finally the whole crew ranged themselves around Captain Len Guy. It was not necessary to lower the boat, the iceberg being in contact with the point. The captain, the boatswain, and myself, preceding the others, were the first to quit the camp. Ours were the first human feet to tread this virgin and volcanic soil. We walked twenty minutes on rough land, strewn with rocks of igneous origin, solidified lava, dusty slag, and grey ashes, but without enough clay to grow even the hardiest plants. With some risk and difficulty, Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, and I succeeded in climbing the hill. This exploit occupied a whole hour. Although evening had come now, it brought no darkness in its train. From the top of the hill we could see over an extent of from thirty to forty miles, and this was what we saw. Behind us lay the open sea, laden with floating masses, a great number of these had recently heaped themselves up against the beach and rendered it almost inaccessible. On the west was a strip of hilly land, which extended beyond our sight, and was washed on the east side by a boundless sea. It was evident that we had been carried by the drift through a strait. Ah, if only we had our halbrane! But our sole possession was a frail craft, barely capable of containing a dozen men, and we were twenty-three. 
there was nothing for it but to go down to the shore again, to carry the tents to the beach, and take measures in view of a winter sojourn under the terrible conditions imposed upon us by circumstances. On our return to the coast, the boatswain discovered several caverns in the gigantic cliffs, sufficiently spacious to house us all and afford storage for the cargo of the Halbrane. Whatever might be our ultimate decision, we could not do better than place our material and install ourselves in this opportune shelter. After we had reascended the slopes of the iceberg and reached our camp, Captain Len Guy had the men mustered. The only missing man was Dirk Peters, who had decidedly isolated himself from the crew. There was nothing to fear from him, however. He would be the faithful against the mutinous, and under all circumstances we might count upon him. When the circle had been formed, Captain Len Guy spoke, without allowing any sign of discouragement to appear, and explained the position with the utmost frankness and lucidity, stating, in the first place, that it was absolutely necessary to lower the cargo to the coast and stow it away in one of the caverns. Concerning the vital question of food, he stated that the supply of flour, preserved meat, and dried vegetables would suffice for the winter, however prolonged and on that of fuel he was satisfied that we should not want for coal, provided it was not wasted, and it would be possible to economize it, as the hibernating waifs might brave the cold of the polar zone under a covering of snow and a roof of ice. Was the captain's tone of security feigned? I did not think so, especially as West approved of what he said. A third question, raised by Hearn, remained and was well calculated to arouse jealousy and anger amongst the crew. It was the question of the use to be made of the only craft remaining to us. Ought the boat to be kept for the needs of our hibernation, or used to enable us to return to the iceberg barrier? Captain Len Guy would not pronounce upon this. He desired to postpone the decision for twenty-four or forty-eight hours. The boat, carrying the provisions necessary for such a voyage, could not accommodate more than eleven, or at the outside, twelve men. If the departure of the boat were agreed to, then its passengers must be selected by lot. The captain proceeded to state that neither West, the boatswain, I nor he, would claim any privilege, but would submit to the fortune of the lot with all the others. Both Martin Holt and Hardy were perfectly capable of taking the boat to the fishing-grounds, where the whalers would still be found. Then those to whom the lot should fall were not to forget their comrades left to winter on the eighty-sixth parallel, and were to send a ship to take them off at the return of summer. All this was said in a tone as calm as it was firm. I must do Captain Len Guy the justice to say that he rose to the occasion. When he had concluded, without any interruption, even from Hearn, no one made a remark. There was indeed none to be made since, in the given case, lots were to be drawn under conditions of perfect equality. The hour of rest having arrived, each man entered the camp, partook of the supper prepared by Endicott, and went to sleep for the last time under the tents. Dirk Peters had not reappeared, and I sought for him in vain. On the following day, the 7th of February, everybody set to work early with a will. The boat was let down, with all due precaution, to the base of the iceberg, and drawn up by the men on a little sandy beach out of reach of the water. It was in perfectly good condition, 
and thoroughly serviceable. The boatswain then set to work on the former contents of the halbrane, furniture, bedding, sails, clothing, instruments, and utensils, stowed away in a cabin. These things would no longer be exposed to the knocking about and damage of the iceberg. The cases containing preserved food and the casks of spirits were rapidly carried ashore. I worked with the captain and West at this onerous task, and Dirk Peters also turned up and lent the valuable assistance of his great strength, but he did not utter a word to any one. Our occupation, continual on the 8th and 9th and 10th February, and our task was finished in the afternoon of the 10th. The cargo was safely stowed in the interior of a large grotto, with access to it by a narrow opening. We were to inhabit the adjoining grotto, and Endicott set up his kitchen in the latter, on the advice of the boatswain. Thus we should profit by the heat of the stove, which was to cook our food and warm the cavern during the long days, or rather the long nights, of the austral winter. During the process of housing and storing, I observed nothing to arouse suspicion in the bearing of Hearn and the Falklands men. Nevertheless, the half-breed was kept on guard at the boat, which might easily have been seized upon the beach. Hurly-gurly, who observed his comrades closely, appeared less anxious. On that same evening, Captain Len Guy, having reassembled his people, stated that the question should be discussed on the morrow, adding that, if it were decided in the affirmative, lots should be drawn immediately. No reply was made. It was late, and half dark outside, for at this date the sun was on the edge of the horizon, and would very soon disappear below it. I had been asleep for some hours when I was awakened by a great shouting at a short distance. I sprang up instantly and darted out of the cavern, simultaneously with the captain and West, who had been suddenly aroused from sleep. "'The boat! The boat!' cried West. The boat was no longer in its place, that place so jealously guarded by Dirk Peters. After they had pushed the boat into the sea, three men had got into it with bales and casks, while ten others strove to control the half-breed. Hearn was there, and Martin Holt also. The latter, it seemed to me, was not interfering. Those wretches, then, intended to depart before the lots were drawn. They meant to forsake us. They had succeeded in surprising Dirk Peters, and they would have killed him, had he not fought hard for his life. In the face of this mutiny, knowing our inferiority of numbers, and not knowing whether he might count on all the old crew, Captain Len Guy re-entered the cavern with West in order to procure arms. Hearn and his accomplices were armed. I was about to follow them when the following words arrested my steps. The half-breed, overpowered by numbers, had been knocked down, and at this moment Martin Holt, in gratitude to the man who saved his life, was rushing to his aid, but Hearn called out to him, "'Leave the fellow alone and come with us.' Martin Holt hesitated. "'Yes, leave him alone, I say. Leave Dirk Peters, the assassin of your brother, alone.' "'The assassin of my brother?' "'Your brother killed on board the Grampus.' "'Killed? By Dirk Peters?' "'Yes, killed and eaten, eaten, eaten,' replied Hearn, who pronounced the hateful words with a kind of howl. And then, at a sign from Hearn, two of his comrades seized Martin Holt and dragged him into the boat. Hearn was instantly followed by all those whom he had induced to join in his criminal deed.
At that moment Dirk Peter rose from the ground, and sprang upon one of the Falkland men as he was in the act of stepping on the platform of the boat, lifted him up bodily, hurled him round his head, and dashed his brains out against a rock. In an instant the half-breed fell, shot in the shoulder by a bullet from Hearn's pistol, and the boat was pushed off. Then Captain Len Guy and West came out of the cavern. The whole scene had passed in less than a minute, and ran down to the point which they reached together with the boatswain, Hardy, Francis, and Stern. The boat, which was drawn by the current, was already some distance off, and the tide was falling rapidly. West shouldered his gun and fired. A sailor dropped into the bottom of the boat. A second shot, fired by Len Guy, grazed Hearn's breast, and the ball was lost amongst the ice-blocks at the moment when the boat disappeared behind the iceberg. The only thing for us to do was to cross to the other side of the point. The current would carry the wretches thither, no doubt, before it bore them northward. If they passed within range, and if a second shot should hit Hearn, either killing or wounding him, his companions might perhaps decide on coming back to us. A quarter of an hour elapsed. When the boat appeared at the other side of the point, it was so far off that our bullets could not reach it. Hearn had already had the sail set, and the boat, impelled by wind and current jointly, was soon no more than a white speck on the face of the waters, and speedily disappeared. End of chapter 22 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.